0: Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura
1: Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado,
0: and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University.
1: On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away.
0: Murder, murder, murder. Wow, Laura, what a summer
1: it's been. Oh, it's been a great summer. I know it's been hard for a lot of people, but we've had a
0: fun one. We have had a really fun one, and we've kind of gone off our usual sort of schedule. So I'm really just psyched to be back in the studio with you, not traveling, and just have a regular episode with you. I'm so psyched. Me too, and
1: this is a pretty good one. I'm excited for this one. Oh
0: my God, me too. And, and like, I'm not usually one for conspiracies, but I gotta tell you, I think this case just begs for a deeper explanation, don't you think?
1: I do, I don't think you have to be a conspiracy theorist to uh, wanna look deeper on this one.
0: And this also involves a big department store called Bloomingdale's. Yes, a department store where I actually worked, so.
1: <laughs> oh, you did, yeah, I, I have right. some There's infa- a little insight on that one. I actually worked at the flagship at the original Bloomingdale's in New, 5, in, New York on, York
0: in New York City on 59th and third, but it was an experience. <laughs> so on July 7th, 1983, sometime model and prostitute Vicki Morgan was found dead in her Studio City apartment. Someone had beaten her to death with a baseball bat. Her gay, drug-addled roommate, Martin Pancoast, walked into a police station at three in the morning and confessed that he had killed Vicky, citing that he, quote, just couldn't take her complaining anymore. So it's kind of an open and shut case, right, Laura?
1: Well, it seemed that way at first, but we will find it really wasn't. We going to look deeper on this one. And that's because Vicky was a longtime mistress of Alfred Bloomingdale, heir to the Bloomingdale department store, and the inventor of the first credit card, Sarah. He, he thought- was one of the richest men in America.
0: More importantly, Bloomingdale was best friends with Ronald Reagan and was part of Reagan's kitchen cabinet. The kitchen cabinet was a cabal of rich Californian men who essentially got Reagan on the presidential ticket. Vicky, shortly before her death, was writing a tell-all book revealing the sex life of important people very close to Reagan. Oh, and then there were the sex tapes. Yes.
1: And just to put this in context, this is all transpiring right before Reagan is elected to president. That's right. So these are in the years where he is campaigning. He had been governor of California. And this is all transpiring when he's governor of California. And then in the years that... Where, he, he's, where
0: he's being groomed to be the president. Exactly. And, and also we say sex tapes and we take it for granted these days. that you know, everyone has a sex tape. Everyone has a sex tape. Kim Kardashian, blah, blah, blah. Sex tapes were virtually unheard of. First of all, trying to tape something was cumbersome back then. You had Betamax tapes. You know, you had to have big clunky cameras. It's not like you could just have an iPhone in the corner.
1: No, I think people don't understand that having a VHS in your house or a beta was not even... I mean, I remember we got one in the 80s as like one of the first people I knew. And that was a big deal. It was. This is the 70s up until the early 80s. This is not... I mean, this would have been big
0: technology at the time if you had something like this. Exactly, And Vicki Morgan promised with these sex tapes that it would make Watergate look like a walk in the park. <laughs> so I don't even know where to begin with this
1: one. Laura. I don't know. I think we're going to just have to start at the very beginning. And that's that Vicki Bornkin was born August 9th, 1952, to Constance, who was from England, and an Air Force vet who divorced and deserted her soon after Vicky was born. She remarried and moved to California, but that husband, Ralph Leaney, Died of a heart attack by the time Vicky was nine.
0: safe to say that Vicki Vicky really had a lot of hardships growing yeah, she up. Yeah, she, she had a difficult childhood. She I mean, was sort of even... abandoned by guys, or she had her father figure die. It was not a very stable home f- for her.
1: No, it wasn't. And we don't even really know all the details. But we do know that about at age 15, she discovers boys. And she's a beautiful girl.
0: Oh, she is gorgeous. She's like tall, blonde, willowy. Yes. Model, good looking.
1: Stunning. And she gets pregnant. And she has a baby at 16. And she has this baby and leaves the baby, Todd, with her mother. And she decides to capitalize on her good looks. uh, Which I think she understands is really the one way she can get ahead. And she knows the effect she has on men. And she goes to Hollywood to try to make it. Leaves her son behind and takes off to Hollywood.
0: Yeah, but you know what, Laura? Like a lot of small-town girls... Vicky goes to Hollywood with empty pockets and a head full of dreams.
1: Oh, yeah. And realizes pretty quick that it's rough, that they're not just handing out movie contracts to every pretty girl who comes to Hollywood.
0: exactly. So she gets a job at Grauman's Chinese Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, and that's a major tourist attraction. Actually, we were just there. If you remember, it's where people, they do their handprints and their footprints and Yeah, we were just there. It was a total trip.
1: Grommens has been around since the early 1900s, and there's been two Academy Award ceremonies there, countless openings. Star Wars opened here. I mean, this is just a place that people go. This is a landmark in California. It actually became a cultural landmark officially. And uh, so she really picked, you know, a a
0: pretty big hotspot for this job where she would hopefully get noticed. So Vicky does get noticed, and actually she meets an older man. She marries him. This is all at the age of 17, which is kind of unbelievable these days. But short-lived marriage, it didn't work out. Yeah, and, I mean, an yeah. older
1: man, his name is Earl Lamb. This is, this is just kind of like a little footnote in her life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just somebody, to, I think, to temporarily take care of her.
0: And so... In 1970, one day, Vicky is on Sunset Boulevard at a place called the Old World Restaurant. She's walking by the Old World Restaurant. Alfred Bloomingdale is having lunch at this restaurant. And so he's 54. She's 17 at, at the time. And he stops her and says, oh, you, you look like my daughter, which I think is very creepy, but whatever. And um, my daughter needs a tennis partner, and he asks her for her number, and she agrees. So upon leaving the restaurant, Bloomingdale hands her an $8,000 check made out to cash. That's a lot of money, Laura, in 1970. That's like... It's about $55,000 today. You are so, so good.
1: I, <laughs> I didn't know that off like the top my, of my head.
0: I had to look that up. She's <laughs> like my walking calculator, yeah, you know? Yeah. Okay, but Laura and I think this is BS. Yeah, we, we I'm going to call whole... bullshit on this story. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So it's a nice little story because Vicky thinks, oh, this older gentleman is giving me his number. She looks down. It's an $8,000 check. And so begins their relationship he calls her and that's it. So what's your theory about Vicky? You don't believe the Czech story. so let's I don't. It. I think that she was a sex worker
1: and she met him in that capacity. Then he became extremely fond of her and wanted her to be his mistress. I think this is just kind of the story. It's like in the early days of internet dating when you met someone that way and you said, okay, let's tell each other we met at a are. You know, it's just like the story you tell yes. because you don't really... You're kind of
0: dressing up the right. not so pretty truth. Exactly. Kind of As we've mentioned, Bloomingdale was one of the richest men in America. Mm-hmm. So let's hear a little bit about Bloomingdale's. You know it a bit more than I do. So, so Alfred Bloomingdale is the grandson of
1: the founder of Bloomingdale's, who is Lyman. G. Bloomingdale, and so he is the heir. And the I think that it's important to understand that Bloomingdale's is more than a department store. Bloomingdale's is a destination, and it's an important part of our culture. Bloomingdale's was opened in 1872, and it wasn't the first department store, but it was a different department store. And what Bloomingdale's did that was different was they understood that people wanted better more upscale more international clothes and that's you know we're talking about 1870 is really when the gilded age starts that's
0: really interesting i i love that you, you know you have to understand especially in new york city right now you've got this boom of commerce of steel of people they've got money to spend so yes, the and bloomingdales were smart enough to know hey Let's take advantage of it. Let's take
1: advantage of it. You know, and in the Gilded Age is really where materialism and corruption takes over. And the industrialists or the robber barons like Vanderbilt and Carnegie and Rockefeller... They're all in New York. Are all in New York and thriving and spending tons of money. And what Bloomingdale's does is they open up a little office within the store so the ladies of the day can come in and they can have a personal shopper who's going to get them stuff from Paris. And they're really creating a much more upscale destination For this new class of New
0: Yorker that's being created. I almost picture it like an American Harrods in in a way. Yes, absolutely. You know, you can go and have a pastry and a cup of tea and go buy a hat and go somebody who would usher you around the shop. Right. You have your
1: alterations. There's currently, I think, five restaurants in Bloomingdale's. I don't know how many there were back then, but there's always been restaurants. It is a destination. You can go for the day. You can go, you can go to the men's department, housewares. There were salons there at different times to have your hair done. So, you know, this was a full destination. This was a very important part of New York City and our culture. Alfred Bloomingdale is the heir to this. And he's not just one of these heirs like we've seen many times, Sarah. And and this is
0: the Ivy League connection, too, because he actually went to Brown University. He did go to Brown.
1: We see some of these lazy heirs who just kind of hang around with showgirls and drink. But that wasn't Alfred Bloomingdale. He was very accomplished. And as a young man, he got kind of tired of going out and carrying all this cash around and to pay for things. It was very cumbersome. And he came up with the idea, which is revolutionary, of the first credit card. It's plastic
0: money. It's plastic money. And he called it the diner's club. And this was a card you could carry around and it would show if you had $2,000 on it it would show, hey, I have $2,000. The card is worth this much. You could go out and have, you know, it was revolutionary. Nobody had thought of this. Right. And this would evolve. Diner's
1: Club is still around Mm -hmm. uh, in a corporate capacity. Nobody uses it. Right. But I mean, it would evolve and become really the first credit card. I mean, Alfred Bloomingdale is the inventor of the first credit card. Yes, exactly. So he, in his own right
0: accomplished a great deal yeah but we come on we got to represent the ivy league here okay he did he he went to brown (laughs) laura Uh, just doesn't want to talk about brown
1: and i'm sorry to any of the brown alumni we have out there but brown is just my least favorite of the ivy league laura no it's not because brown isn't fabulous it's just not i couldn't find enough scandal there there just wasn't enough there for me to
0: we just can't keep Laura happy here. Yeah. Listen, any Brown alumni out there who know some fun facts about Brown, please fill us in, okay?
1: And look, Brown is an interesting place. They have an open curriculum. I don't, I don't know, Sarah. No GPAs, all pass, fail. That's you quite... just said, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I hear you. They have four books that are bound in human skin, though. Okay. That's pretty interesting. And they have some pretty cool alumni. We're talking John D. Rockefeller, Ted Turner, JFK Jr., Doug Lyman. Long. Who is an amazing director. Doug and- Lyman, Emma Watson. So Doug, you're in good company. I think, I mean, this is my own personal opinion, Sarah, but I'm going to say I think it's one of the most popular of the Ivies. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, just from my exp- our experience, it just seems like it's the
0: Ivy everyone wants to go to. It's true. But, and don't tell anybody, but I didn't get into Brown. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, it was either me or someone else in their interview. Somebody was nursing their baby during the interview to get into Brown. So right. That's, that's like typical Brown. I'm trying you know? hard to be fair here, right? But that sums up Brown.
1: <laughs> okay. It's in, it's in Providence, Island. Right? It's very beautiful. Sarah and I were actually just- We were just there. It is absolutely gorgeous. And so let's cut to it. And and, so, and, uh, yeah. So let's cut to this crazy affair where, with this 17-year-old girl. This is insane. She's not even legal yet when this starts.
0: And you know, the thing is, like, she's married, semi-married to this guy, Earl, but- Alfred Bloomingdale actually was married to a woman named Betty Lee, quote unquote, Betsy Newling. And he had married her in 1946. Betsy Bloomingdale was the daughter of a prominent Beverly Hills physician. And she is a powerhouse in her own right. Oh, she's the grand dame of, of the West Coast, she of was the social Na- set. Absolutely. She was Nancy Reagan's best friend. And she really was one of the biggest socialites of the day. And both the Bloomingdales were close friends of the Reagans. And they had multiple homes, but their primary residence was in um, Holmby Hills. So Holmby Hills is, (laughs) we like to describe it as the Beverly Hills of Beverly
1: Hills. Yes, it's part of the platinum triangle. So it's right there with Beverly Hills and Bel Air. But it's it's kind of like the biggest gem of them all. So this is where the Playboy Mansion is. This is where people like Beyonce have homes. I love, I,
0: I love that people in Holmby Hills like look down on the people in Beverly
1: Hills. I know. <laughs> oh, you shop on Rodeo right. Drive. They oh. have, yeah, they, they, have like <laughs> their, they have their they have their gates to keep out like the riffraff <laughs> from Beverly Hills. <laughs> We're talking super exclusive. This isn't normal wealth, Sarah, like we normally talk about oftentimes on this show. This is like royalty. This is like severe wealth. I really, I mean, I I follow the royals. I'm a little obsessed. And this is like royalty. I mean, if you want to anybody, I welcome you to look it up. I mean, this home is, it's like a castle.
0: Yeah, this home is magnificent. It's open, it's airy. I believe it's a Bruce Haynes design. She had the most amazing decorations. Everything was just high, high, high end. I mean, Bruce Haynes is so exclusive. He didn't
1: sign his work. He said, if you're in a Bruce Haynes home, you'll know.
0: Yes. But here's where the Blooming, Alfred Bloomingdale in particular is interesting to me because on the one hand, he has this, incredible life. They had incredible parties, A-list actors coming to their parties, the Reagans. But Alfred was also very into the Hollywood sex power game. And when I say that, he's into BDSM, which is sadomasochism, domination, really hardcore orgies. And he... Gets Vicky Morgan involved in this lifestyle. First, she's shocked. At first, Mm -hmm. he's including other prostitutes with her, but Alfred provides Vicky with also an incredibly luxurious lifestyle. Yeah, Vicky
1: becomes like a concubine. She's given a monthly.
0: We decided not a
1: concubine, a courtesan, a courtesan, a courtesan. So she's set up in a a beautiful home in the Hollywood Hills. She's given a car. She's taking a limousine to Beverly Hills to do her shopping and have her hair done. He's setting her up basically in a lifestyle he's comfortable with because he's going to be stopping by the home and spending time with her. So it becomes a little extension of his world. But imagine this life for her because now this is a time pre-cell phone, pre-beeper. She's expected to just be home and be available and waiting for him. And she's expected to participate in all of his different sexual adventures or games or
0: deviances. But she has to be available to him at the drop of a hat. Right. I mean, that's what she's she's getting paid to do, basically. But she essentially doesn't have any life of her own. No, she doesn't. Right. And at some point, Betsy finds out about Alfred's affair with Vicky, and she throws an absolute fit. What wife wouldn't? I think... Betsy Bloomingdale knew that Alfred had affairs, probably knew he went and saw prostitutes but she really insisted on discretion but he really, he had a real relationship with Vicky Morgan and he also was supporting her substantially financially and I think obviously Betsy Bloomingdale was not keen on this what wife would be.
1: Yeah, I mean I don't think Betsy found out about it till it had been going on for so long. I think that this wasn't just him you know, stepping out with a passing fancy. This was threatening to her. It, as was. it would be.
0: It is, but Bloomingdale is, I think he was a bit of a provocateur, a very sort of alpha male type of guy. And, and he didn't hide his affair with Vicky at all. In fact, he had Vicky do her hair at the same place that Betsy was having her hair. And the way Betsy discovers it, the affair, was that she walks past a car that Alfred is making out with Vicky.
1: Yeah, I think there's different stories about how she found out, but I know I, other people have said Nancy Reagan told her. I mean, I, I'm not sure we'll ever know the the exact story, you know, but she does find out and insists that Alfred cut off the relationship.
0: So on Betsy Bloomingdale's insistence, Alfred and Vicky briefly broke up. But you have to understand... She was dating other people. She, like, dated Cary Grant at a certain point. She dated a Saudi princess who took Vicky out on her yacht. There was even a
1: brief marriage at one point. There was a brief marriage. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, this was kind of an off-and-on thing, but Alfred was always there for her to go back to. Yes, exactly. So, you know, he never cuts it off.
0: So what happens in 1975 I thought was pretty interesting because really... Betsy has her own headaches as well. So after a trip to Paris in 1975, Betsy had bought some very expensive gowns. They're not dresses. These are gowns. These are high couture gowns. $20,000, $50,000 per dress. Exactly. So in order not to pay the huge custom levy on the gowns, Betsy Bloomingdale fudged the numbers, making the gowns look like they were less valuable than they actually were. <laughs> and then she got, she was convicted of a felony for cheating customs. Like, you got to love the crazy rich, man. It's like, she just didn't want to pay the taxes on it. Right.
1: You know? Her husband's worth like $140 million
0: <laughs> and she's trying to screw them out of a customs charge. So meanwhile, with Betsy distracted by her own in- embarrassing press, Alfred goes back to Vicky. Alfred and Vicky had a 12-year relationship. I think they had breakups. I think they had, I think Betsy would kind of come in and kind of insist that Alfred not see her. It's a bit ambiguous, (laughs) exactly the timing of it all. But safe to say that Alfred also had political aspirations, and he would have been a prominent figure in the Reagan political machine. In fact, he's one of the people who was part of Reagan's kitchen cabinet and one of the very sort of influential Californian men who got Reagan into office. Absolutely. And had he lived, he would
1: have definitely been, I'm sure, appointed to some type of role within the cabinet.
0: Absolutely. But unfortunately, Alfred was diagnosed with throat cancer so he gets hospitalized with throat cancer. And I guess it must have been like stage four, because he actually, from diagnosis to, to his death, he wasn't around that long. I think it was a matter of a few months.
1: No, and this is where it gets kind of, kind of crazy, because when he's in the hospital, Vicky goes in to see him and has him write out, handwrite some type of an agreement that he'll continue to pay
0: her or take care of her. And this is to the tune of 10000 a month. Where this is sixty plus grand a month at this time, yeah. Big bucks.
1: He's there in the hospital in stage four cancer, God knows what his state of mind is, and she's having him
0: sign out this piece of paper. But of course Betsy Bloomingdale gets wind of this and she cuts Vicky off, which results in Vicky getting evicted from her home.
1: I think up until this time, Alfred Bloomingdale always had control over his finances. Yeah, it's not right. until he's completely sick and debilitated that he's incapacitated Betsy is able point. to come in and really take over the reins. And she actually, it's very interesting, I think, because we've seen so many cases where the very wealthy will pretty much pay off anybody, even if it's somebody who murdered somebody in their family to avoid scandal to, to stay quiet and she is just does the absolute opposite she will not give this woman any money regardless no. of what she says or threatens
0: i want to back up a little bit and let our listeners know also that vicky morgan and you have to understand this is la this is 1970s 19 early 80s Vicki Morgan, who had kind of dabbled with drinks and alcohol, had at certain points during her relationship with Alfred kind of spiraled out. And at one point, she had had to go to a rehab. At the rehab, she meets a man named Martin Pancoast, and he'll play in, obviously, we've mentioned Martin's name, and he will play into this story a little bit later down the line. But
1: Yeah, I don't think that Vicky did anything but sit around all day and drink and take drugs. I mean, she had no identity of her own. Uh, She didn't appear to have many friends. She didn't have any interests. Her whole life was really just being a kept woman and at his disposal or at times other men's disposal. I mean, it really is a very sad existence.
0: It is, but I have to say, look, they're together for together, quote unquote, for 12 years. There is more than sex in this relationship. I think that they loved each other. There was some codependence. There was some obsession on both sides, Alfred and, and Vicky. This yeah, day. I think yeah. he was like a father to her. I okay. think so, too. Yeah, I mean, when Vicky
1: gets sh- cut off, she really kind of loses it, because she has nothing to fall back on.
0: I mean, all these
1: years, she's making all this money. She never saved any of it.
0: No, she didn't, she really does start to spiral down. She's been evicted.
1: Mm -hmm. She has no
0: real way of me. She's been cut off.
1: All of the trappings of this life she had with him are all being removed from
0: her. She panics. And she panics. And so her dreams of being taken care of really die when Alfred dies on August 23rd, 1982. And she has to move out. And like we said, she had been evicted. So she has to kind of move to like the quote, wrong side of the tracks, which is Studio City, which is probably now Studio City. You know, pri- yeah, perfectly you, fine. You totally, perfectly fine. But at that time, no, it was not. So what happens then? Vicky brings a palimony suit against Alfred's estate.
1: Yes. And she basically says that they had a business arrangement where she basically took care of his needs and uh, his sexual needs and his sadistic needs. And in, in turn, he paid her.
0: Well, no, a palimony suit, though, is kind of like if you had a common-law marriage. It is, but okay. she
1: puts it as a, a con- that and as kind of an arrangement they had.
0: That's right. But she doesn't cut a very sympathetic figure, and a judge definitely agrees with Betsy and says that it was Alfred paying Vicky as basically a prostitute, and the judge throws out the suit. Right. So now Vicky goes to her next move... Because when the palimony suit goes nowhere, Vicky threatens to to write a tell-all book targeting really important Republicans and the RNC and people close to Reagan. You have to understand, Reagan was governor. He's now president. She's threatened that what she would reveal would make Watergate look like a playground. This would be so embarrassing to the party, because you have to understand the Republican Party really they took this kind of like pretty moral high ground. And so this would have been incredibly damaging for any party, but particularly for the Republican Party at that time. Yeah, I don't really believe this. I think that Vicky
1: knew a lot about Alfred and his personal life, and she probably could have written a really embarrassing book about him. I think she knew more embarrassing information than dangerous information.
0: Yeah, but embarrassing—it's tantamount to being dangerous. I
1: mean, but I think what she knew was probably more contained to his family. I'm not sure that I don't know. I don't no, think I don't, think, I don't think all so. this information about. I don't believe that he would have let her be sexual with all these other politicians and people. It's not that I, just, I just believe it could have happened. I just don't believe. Oh, I totally believed it. Totally I think he disagree. was. I think he was somewhat possessive with her, and I don't believe he would have just lent her out. No, that way. he was into orgies. Lord. Yeah, but even in the orgies, he was he was just with her what, oh, what? he was like, with other women too but he wasn't lending her out to other people no, she screwed around a lot with other people yeah but not 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 like with him
0: no i i don't think that I, yeah, I think I, that, I think it's such a no i i well clearly i think there was okay. enough of a, a threat there that people were on notice about this. Oh,
1: I think people were nervous. I think yeah, she'd had the potential to know tons of stuff. She spent 12 years with this man.
0: Right. Who and knows I mean what she could have known. And and what she's heard through mm-hmm. him and certain secrets right. and things about wives and certain things about which person was having an affair with whom right and that's why
1: and i've heard it speculated that probably what she knew was more embarrassing than dangerous and that meaning that she would have known a lot about the personal lives of people and that type of stuff which you're right could be dangerous to people's political careers and i think you're 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 right but i'm not sure alfred would have trusted her with major
0: i don't know political information from what i read in the la weekly ed meese who was like one of reagan's close cabinet members he was in one of these sex tapes you know? alleged
1: sex tapes because we've never there's never sex tapes have never all right we'll get to the sex tapes
0: yeah. laura and i of course we have to argue about everything <laughs> no so vicky descends into addiction and despair and she sells off her remaining possessions from alfred and this is like a Mercedes. She has some furs. Can she you has just some see jewelries. her with like the old, the old Mercedes convertible? I just imagine oh, she had that one hundred percent like red Mercedes yeah. co- convertible, yeah. but sadly selling it. So by 1983, Vicky's really she is down on her luck, and she can't afford her thousand dollar a month rent. So she calls on her old friend, Marvin Pancoast to be her roommate. Now, this is not a romantic thing. I think Pancoast was sort of fascinated with Vicky because Vicky, she was kind of like on the fringes of celebrity. She
1: had kind of touched fame.
0: And I think
1: as close as he was going to get.
0: All right. He
1: was fascinated by fame and the whole Hollywood scene. He was a hanger on.
0: Right. And so if you remember, she had met Pancoast in rehab. And so he moves in with her to like help her out with rent. I had read something about him that he had worked for one of the studios and you used to have something called a Rolodex for our younger, (laughs) our younger listeners. This was like cards with names and people's numbers on them. It was all alphabetized. And so you would sort of move it in a circle and to the card that you were trying to find. So apparently he stole like the Rolodex from this one studio, which means you've got producers, all your you, contacts, you've got actresses, right. you've got lighting people, you've got all your contacts in this Rolodex. So he steals the Rolodex, they complain about it, and then he returns the Rolodex with none of the cards, just the empty Rolodex thing with, with none of the, <laughs> the cards. It's so insane. So he was a little bit kooky. He's one of those sad LA souls you see out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Like a hungry ghost kind of person. Although he was gay, he was totally beguiled by Vicky, which a lot of people were. Probably because of her sort of brush with fame and her association with Bloomingdale and everything like that. So Pankos, they move in together. She's basically catatonic. I mean, whether it's Alfred, the loss of Alfred, whether it's the loss of income, whether it's the combination, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is. I get the impression that she's very depressed. I don't think she's even getting out of bed at this point. She's still pitching through a lawyer that she's got these tapes.
1: Yes, it's true. But she's basically dysfunctional. She's dysfunctional, but like that's still out there. Just so people know that the tapes are that's lingering and the book is lingering.
0: Well, the tapes are an interest. The tapes come up a little bit later on. What she is doing is supposedly co-writing a book with a writer who is ghostwriting her book about all these scandals. So instead of, they didn't produce very much, but they did have an affair and he was married with like a very, very young child. So she's having an affair with this guy. And so this is, is how she's, you know, this is the big threat that, you know, she's going to publish this book. So, so she's in her Studio City apartment. She's, she's living with Pankos. He takes over. He's taking over the errands, the laundry. He's like a do boy for her. He's a total do boy for her. In addition to writing the book, Vicky also claimed that she had sex tapes that depicted very important figures from the Reagan administration. This was big, big,
1: big news. As we've seen, and I mentioned that so many cases where people are so willing to pay someone off, and it is interesting to me that Betsy wasn't willing to pay her off.
0: I can totally see why she wouldn't. I mean, can you I imagine- paid, I would have paid her off. It, can you imagine the cheek of this person, though, honestly? I you, know, but you it was You have a so 12-year affair with your husband, and then you want money for in perpetuity for having been- his mistress
1: would have meant nothing to to Betsy Bloomingdale to write her a million dollar check and make her go
0: away so what though I I think people already knew about people already knew about this open affair (laughs) Betsy Bloomingdale's of the world are so proud and I can see her saying that what that trollop is not getting a penny I totally see her saying something like that
1: I know she did, and I respect her for it. I think that this has happened before, and people have been paid off, so we don't know about it. In most cases, people are willing to pay to keep these situations quiet, so we don't do podcasts about them.
0: Yes, that's true. uh, And that this wouldn't have been a case, but suffice to say, so like we said from the very beginning, on July 7th, 1983, Martin Pankos walks into a police station and basically confesses to the murder of Vicky Morgan.
1: Pretty convenient for Betsy, Bloomingdale, and everybody else involved that she's kind of taken out of the picture.
0: Well, that's, yes, that's true. So this is not where the story ends. So the police immediately go to the scene and they
1: investigate. She's been beaten with the bat. He confesses, right? So there doesn't seem to be much really more to investigate here.
0: Yes, except for they take it on face value that Martin Pancoast he confesses to this. So they, quote, process the scene, but they don't really process the scene. They don't collect the evidence in the correct manner. They don't take fingerprint evidence. They really do a very shoddy job with the evidence in this case. And why is that important? OK, you can argue that Pankos, you know confessed, open and shut case all that kind of stuff. But there are witnesses in and around the neighbors of that apartment building who say that men were taking boxes of stuff out of that apartment in the early morning hours of July 7th. It's bizarre to me that the police would not do a very cursory just process the scene, take fingerprints, mm-hmm. take blood evidence. It's, it's something is kind of shady, and it has given rise to the idea that Pancoast either worked with somebody else and, and killed Vicky or was paid to do it. In the background too, Pancoast is a gay man. He was diagnosed with AIDS. Which was a death sentence at that it was time. This is death before sentence.
1: the cocktail. At this point that you know, a diagnosis of
0: HIV is really a death sentence. Devastating. Absolutely devastating. And so four days after Vicky's murder, there's an attorney by the name of Robert Steinberg, and he's really kind of a Hollywood lawyer, says that a mysterious blonde dropped off some videotapes. According to Steinberg, The videotapes show Vicky having sex with high-ranking Reagan cabinet members. The blonde didn't leave her name, but said the tapes would, quote, help Panko's defense. Then Steinberg claims the tapes were stolen from his office.
1: Yeah, I don't believe this story at all. I think if he really did come into possession of something that earth-shatteringly important, he would have probably immediately copied the tapes immediately put them in like the safest place possible. It's too convenient that they're gone, they're lost. I don't know. I just don't believe it.
0: And Laura and I were talking about this as well. I think that the manner of death does not seem to be consistent with kind of a cover-up. Look, if high-ranking people wanted to get rid of Vicki Morgan, here's a way to do it. Get her a bunch of pills and force her to swallow the pills and she overdoses. Yeah. You know, she was a drug user anyway. That's the... Would have been easy enough to do. It would have been. So... I think Pankos also, you know, he redacts his confession as well. He says a few days later when he's also a drug user, he's also out of it. He says, hey, I woke up and I found her bludgeoned like that. I don't know if I did it or not, you know? Yeah, I
1: do think he did it and uh, it worked out well enough for everyone involved. And then because of the tremendous power that Betsy had, she was able to use some of her influence on the police department and the press. Oh, to, to to, she, she buried.
0: The, the case buried, the, get buried. Yeah,
1: the, buried, the yeah. story gets kind of buried. The police back off. You don't have a full investigation into her connection to Bloomingdale and all the other ties that you might have had, I think, if, if Betsy Bloomingdale. I just wouldn't surprise me if she may put a few phone calls into some police captains. So. Oh, I'm,
0: I'm quite sure. And I'm I, I sure. think
1: that's where you see kind of the influence of in the privilege here. So, what do you think, Laura? I think that she bothered Martin to death. And, you know, I think she was a very sick drug addict, I think, you know, with a sad life. She lived in this expensive, gilded prison. I think that there was nothing particularly glamorous about her life. It was very sad.
0: I think it was sad too, but I think that somebody like Pankhurst also probably put her on a bit of a pedestal. Here's this sort of, oh, I don't know, the the beautiful bird with the broken wing kind oh, of thing. Oh, absolutely. The, the, the celebrity. The, she had a certain glamour to her. Absolutely. And I think when you see somebody like that, then not being able to get out of bed, the drug addict's life, living, it just, maybe he snapped Because in her dreams being broken, perhaps his dreams also got broken. I don't know, though. Look, I'm of the thought that is it such a stretch to think that powerful men close to Reagan didn't have something to do with Vicky's murder? They orchestrated all kinds of anti-communist guerrilla coups in El Salvador and Afghanistan. They supported totalitarian leaders like Marcos in the Philippines. Is it such a stretch to think that they wouldn't have... A Vicky Morgan killed? She's,
1: you know... A, well, I don't a, think a, I, that's specific to Reagan. I think any political leader
0: would, well, but would, would have but, that but mo- but motive. Maybe, but we're talking about this particular, the particulars of this particular yeah. regime. I And I agree. I mean, you know, stuff has happened, you know, so because I think it's one of the... One, it is interesting that one of the people who was implicated was Ed Meese. And, you know, he was at Yale at, you know, graduate... Mies was really Reagan's right-hand man and very good friends with Bloomingdale as well. And it's not my words, according to the LA Weekly, Ed Mies was one of the participants in the missing sex tapes. And so I love the irony, this is so perfect, that under Reagan, Mies ran a commission against pornography citing how damaging it was, so...
1: Yeah, but I, you know, I don't think there's any evidence that these sex tapes actually exist. So I don't know that we can speculate that any of these people actually in uh, something that we don't even know that it existed. But what does Steinberg, the
0: attorney Steinberg, what does he get out of claiming that he saw these? Well, we're
1: still talking about him all these years later, so he gets a place in history. I know, and people are very, you know, people love to be attached to cases and to significant events.
0: I love this story though. And I've really realized that part of why I love it, I love I love glamour. I love sleaze. I love the glamorous side of smut. <laughs> I think there's something kind of like inherently intimidating about people like Alfred Bloomingdale and that there's something, there's like a leveling. There's like a crack in the perfect armor when you when you find out about smutty details like this, you know? The well, story has it all for me. And, you know. you
1: know, Dominic Dunn thought so too, and he actually wrote a fictionalized version of this called An Inconvenient Woman. He loved this story. Loved this story and absolutely worth reading. It's it's very close to the truth. He, he changes it somewhat, but it's very close and a, a fabulous read. And uh, yeah, this is a fascinating story and uh, it's kind of left up to, you know, to the listener, to the reader, in case of the book, to, to speculate and uh, and decide what you think.
0: Murder. Murder.